Across America, BP supports more than 275,000 jobs to keep energy flowing. Jobs like updating turbines at one of our Indiana wind farms and producing more oil and gas with fewer operational emissions in the Gulf of Mexico. It's and, not or. See what doing both means for energy nationwide at bp.com slash investing in America. Ophthalmologist Dr. Strauss has seen firsthand how the metaverse is helping surgeons practice the procedures to treat cataracts. Cataracts are the primary cause of avoidable blindness. He works with a virtual reality training platform developed by Fundamental VR and Orbis International to help surgeons develop the muscle memory they need. The result? More confident, capable surgeons. And even more importantly, patients who can see. Explore more stories like Dr. Strauss's at meta.com slash metaverse impact. It's Friday, July 8th, 2016, and you're listening to Inquiring Minds. I'm Andre Viscontis. And I'm Kishore Hari. Each week, we bring you a new in-depth exploration of the space where science, politics, and society collide. We endeavor to find out what's true, what's left to discover, and why it all matters. You can find us online at motherjones.com slash inquiringminds or inquiringshow.tumblr.com. You can also find us on Twitter at inquiringshow and Facebook. And you can subscribe to the show on iTunes or any other podcasting app. Indre, what do you think the sound of the universe is? And before you answer, this isn't one of those trick questions, like the sound of one hand clapping or if a tree falls in the forest. Do you think the universe has a sound? Well, again, as a psychologist, I think sound is something that happens in your brain. So it depends what aspect of the universe. That is the least fun answer possible. <laughs> but no, it because we're used to the idea of there's a vacuum in space. So how can there possibly be sound? But we found sound of the universe recently in terms of the LIGO gravitational wave detection last year. This is obviously international news. It's going to be one of the biggest discoveries of 2016, if not the biggest discovery in physics this decade, because it validates general relativity, which is a you know theory everyone's heard of. So this is such an important discovery. But what is so strange about it to me is that the discovery had an audible sound in the human spectrum. Huh. And that still blows me away. You want to take a listen? Yeah. Whoa, what is that? Well, it's the sound of two black holes colliding about 1.3 billion light years away. So it's a... Interesting sound, you would say, but it is the ripple of space-time itself. That is amazing. I think I think the thing that is so exciting about the LIGO finding is that it happened like almost immediately, you know, this notion that they turned on, they spent so many decades building this big thing, this extremely difficult, you know, precise tool, and then they turned it on and boop, there we go. <laughs> but that unlikely finding that you're bringing up is even more unlikely when you unpackage the story. That's why I'm so excited this week we have Jana Levin on the show. She's a professor of astrophysics at Columbia University, and she studies the topology of the universe. I don't even know what that means, but it sounds amazing. She's also a famous science author, writing one of my favorite science books, How the Universe Got Its Spots. And she's out with a new book now called Black Hole Blues, which details the weird 
unlikely, unbelievable story of the building, construction, and then discovery uh, at the LIGO detector. Awesome. I wonder why she calls it blues, because it sounds like it's a happy ending. Well, maybe there's a soundtrack to to the universe. Ah, and maybe it's a little bluesy. Ooh. We'll see what you have to say as the musician of the group. So let's take a short break. and We'll be back with my interview with Jan Eleven. Jan Eleven, welcome to Inquiring Minds. Thank you for having me. Do you recall the moment when you heard the universe for the first time? You mean the discovery? Yeah. Oh, my gosh, of course. Well, I remember the moment I was told of the discovery, which was a few months earlier than the announcement. Um, I got an amazing note from the director, David Reitze, and he later told me he really worked on crafting it just right in case I put it in the book. (laughs) Um, And it just said, confidential communication from LIGO. And my heart started pounding. I mean, here it's an ordinary day. I'm not expecting it. I'm lying on the couch. And um, I realized I'm about to read something that's going to change everything. There's going to be a before and an after. And uh, and he told me about the discovery. On September 14th, we uh, recorded the collision of two black holes. It was a beautiful note. And it was signed Dave, Kip Thorne, and Ray Weiss. Oh, that's beautiful. What, so sweet. What was it like for you Well, reading I, that note? You know, I kept jumping up and leaping away <laughs> and trying to just knowing each sentence was going to blow my mind. And um, it was almost unbelievable. Like, I didn't believe it for a second. And I think that's how a lot of the scientists felt when I spoke to Rana Adhikari, who's one of the LIGO scientists from Caltech. Uh, he said, um, oh, come on, we just turned the thing on. <laughs> he said it took him a full day to even bother to look at the data. Um, and I think a lot of people felt that way. This can't be. This can't possibly be. All the experimentalists told me in August when the machine was approaching its first runs, the advanced machine was installed after years of installation and commissioning and getting it locked. They all told me, oh, 2018, the earliest. So I think it was, um, it was a combination of surprise and also a feeling of, oh, this is it. Of course, this is it. And do you remember when they they sent the sound recording for the first time? Yeah, so I I sonified it myself as soon as they told me. So as soon as they told me the specs, um, I do a lot of black hole astrophysics. So I have codes lying around where I've simulated the collision of two black holes um, colliding, and I generate the gravitational waveform. By the way, that's awesome. I opened my Mac. I looked for an old, you know, code that was a couple of years old. I changed the specs to be black holes of about the mass that they were talking about, 29 times the mass of the sun, 35, 36 times the mass of the sun. And, um, and I sent them on a very short circular orbit collision. The funny thing is I couldn't hear anything. It was driving me crazy. And when I kept playing back my own simulation of the sound, I couldn't hear anything. I was going nuts. It turns out that the frequencies are so low that they were falling off of what my computer speakers could manage. Thanks, Apple. (laughs) So yes, when I heard it for the first time for real, when they slowed it down and played it through proper speakers, and it has to be slowed down. It happens uh, that the the sound is only loud enough to record in the final fifth of a second, 200 milliseconds, and the ear can't parse it. 
So they slow it down, but somehow manage to maintain the frequency. I've actually got to ask them how they're doing this. But anyway, I remember it sounding different, it sounding the same and different. I think what's stunning is how accurate the predictions are and how similar it is to what we predicted. You're actually a black hole theorist more than an experimentalist. Yeah. What drew you to this story of LIGO? Because you. I mean, you have impeccable timing. Your book came out right after the discovery, but it wasn't intended that way. No, I was two years late on the book. (laughs) And I was two years late because I ended up writing a completely different book than the one I thought I was going to write. So yeah, I do a lot of theoretical work on black hole astrophysics. I have a special approach, I think, to explaining the um, the astrophysics of black holes to explaining black holes as objects, the idea that there's really nothing there. They're not really things. They're more like places. Um, they're places that move around. <laughs> and um, I wanted to write a whole book about that. And I was using LIGO as a hook for um, generating enthusiasm about why we're still working so hard now that LIGO is on the horizon. And um, I ended up just being totally enamored of what the experimentalists were doing precisely because I'm not an experimentalist and I couldn't do what they're doing. And I thought it was insane. I just thought it was insane. I couldn't believe the kind of confidence to build a machine out of metal and glass and light that could try to detect variations over four kilometers of a 10,000th of the width of a proton. I mean, I just, I, there's, it's almost like the theorists, some of us, well, at least I am, are playing in my own imagination. And these guys were going to do something real. Let's talk about the technical details of the discovery, mm-hmm. because I think a lot of people have heard about the discovery. Yeah. But not the instrument itself. Yeah. So yeah. you visited the I instrument. I was like, I have a crush on the instrument. You have a crush on the instrument? <laughs> Which one? On the, instrument. the one in Hanford or the one the in whole, Both of them. Um, I met the one at Hanford first. <laughs> Um, and that's because there's some wonderful people at Hanford that, that really welcomed me. And I have to say, you know, it's a big community. They don't have to welcome in the theorist hanging on the periphery. And, and they did. Mike Landry is lead scientist there. It's just this amazingly wonderful guy. And he took me around a lot and, uh, um, we got in bunny suits and we went into the labs and this is during the time of the installation of the advanced machine. So I should say the first machines were built in around 2000. The vacuum that exists along the four kilometer arms, which is along which the the laser light travels, it was drawn in 1998 and has not been brought up to atmosphere since. Cumulatively, it's the largest holes in the Earth's atmosphere. There's less stuff in those arms than there is in regions of interstellar space. And the whole need—the need for the vacuum—is is purely so that they don't—they have a more precise instrument. There's nothing going to be in there that's going to interfere with. That's right. The laser has to has to be undeflected. The power has to be very high and built up, and it's really to keep the laser nice and clean, and so that it it can travel four kilometers in a nice tight beam, and hit a mirror at the end, and and on its return trip, tell the apex back at the apex of the instrument, back at the apex of the L-shaped instrument, um, how far away that mirror is. So it's really, the idea is that the mirrors are floating freely in space-time as much as they can be. They're hanging by these incredibly delicate glass fibers. And if a gravitational wave passes, the mirror bobs slightly on the wave, like something floating in the ocean. And when you say mirror, is this a mirror that we all relate to in our house, or is this kind of specialized? The mirrors to the human eye are completely transparent. They're hard to see, they're so transparent. 
they're stunning. And that's because uh, in optical light, they have zero reflectivity, but they're perfect mirrors, very nearly 99.999% reflective to the laser light. And to do that, these mirrors are, are ground, I think in Germany, and then they're sent all over the world for like 80 special coatings. And they're sent in these boxes that have sort of GSP things on them so that when the people get, get receive them, they can tell if they've been mishandled <laughs> and that they haven't been knocked around. So it's a really delicate, the mirrors are important um, and a delicate, and there are many mirrors. There are secondary mirrors and primary mirrors. Um, um, but the primary mirrors are the ones that you're trying to locate in space-time. So let me see if I got this right. We have an L-shaped, like, four-kilometer tube that has a near-perfect vacuum pulled on it. Yes. With mirrors that have been specially designed that they're so perfect, they are translucent. Mm -hmm. And you have a precise laser running down the width of it. And what kind of perturbation are we looking for in this so laser? So the laser comes in at the apex of the L and splits, goes down the two arms, comes back and recombines. And it tells at the back at the apex, the laser light, if it recombines perfectly, tells you that the mirrors haven't moved. But it actually always recombines a little bit imperfectly. And if a gravitational wave passes, it tells you how much the mirrors have moved by. And the, it's measuring variations in the locations of the mirrors over four kilometers of one ten thousandth the width of a proton. Uh, that is nothing. That is, <laughs> yeah, is so it's less so than nothing. nothing. It's, it's so less than nothing. In fact, it's a really complicated procedure where what they really try to do is continually put the mirror back to its location. And what they really measure is how much effort it takes to put the mirror back. It's kind of like a thermostat that's always trying to keep the temperature at 75 degrees. And um, it measures how much it has to work to keep putting it back to 75 degrees. I love the actual story of the detection that night because it yeah. seemed like it was incredibly unlikely. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, so the first generation of instruments ran for uh, many science runs six, seven science runs, I'm, I'm not positive, um, and detected nothing. And uh, it was probably operating at just a little worse than uh, a thousandth the width of a proton variations. It's, so it's pretty incredible. So when they turned the machine on in September, basically they spent a few years removing the old components, installing more advanced components, but preserving the vacuum along the tubes and commissioning, locking the instrument, you know, that takes months. And so when they turned it on, they weren't at full advanced capability. This was the first run. And they were still doing what they call engineering runs. They were still testing the machine, knocking it around. Ray Weiss, who's one of the original architects, who at 83 is still actively walking the beam tunnels, the tubes, and doing experiments, says he was there on Sunday, September 3rd, 13th, uh, looking for radio interference. And his wife said it was really time for him to come home. And he said, thank God, my wife told me to come home. So he went home. So they, they stopped home. working on so it. So they stopped. That night, graduate students who were doing other things and, and, and also other scientists who, who are permanent research scientists on the machine were working till four in the morning, uh, Louisiana time, till two in the morning in Washington state. And, um, and they're disturbing the machine, which means the machine can't make a detection while it's being disturbed. It's just going to hear noise. And they decided, you know, it's not, the science run was postponed. They didn't feel they were completely ready yet, but they got tired at four in the morning. People often work all night long and they put their tools down and they went home. Within the span of an hour, this gravitational wave, which had been traveling for 1.3 billion years, 
comes from the southern sky, rings the machine in Louisiana, which luckily they left locked and in observing mode. It travels for seven milliseconds across the continent and then rings the machine in Washington state. By the time Ray wakes up, 8.30 a.m. or something on the East Coast, the gravitational waves traveled some hundreds of billions of light years. <laughs> it's gone. And they look at the data, and there's an automatic signal in the data. And they think, huh, what was that? <laughs> <laughs> That's the reaction is like, huh, I wonder What's what happened. That? Because they weren't expecting something at this point. They had not fully appreciated a couple of things. One was that even though at the high frequencies the instrument wasn't as sensitive as it needs to be, at the low frequencies it was doing really well. And um, they hadn't appreciated that there were going to be such big black holes ringing the instrument with such low notes. And so that's why it was a surprise. So it was a discovery on many levels. It was not just that it was the first gravitational wave sound recorded, which was obviously huge. It was black holes. And Ray told me in August, which in part inspired the title, um, if we don't discover black holes, this thing is a failure. You know, people told me black holes would be last. And it's because we don't understand the populations and how big they are and what, what's out there. Kip Thorne always said it's going to be black holes first, because he said, you know, they can get arbitrarily big. He was right. They can get arbitrarily big, and so they can be arbitrarily loud, and they're going to be the first ones we hear, even if they're less of them, the black hole pairs. Let's talk briefly. What other things can this thing pick up besides so the black holes, which it, is what we heard about? So mostly, and it's two black holes. It was two black holes colliding. So like mallets on a drum, it's like this final you know, crescendo when they're banging the drum. Um, we're also... Um, anticipating neutron star, neutron star mergers. And that's sort of bread and butter, because we know neutron stars exist because we can see them in telescopes. And uh, we can't see them in other galaxies because they're too faint. So the black hole collision, I'm sorry, the neutron star collisions, we would be able to hear in other galaxies, even though we can't see them, because they're loud enough that we presume to be able to hear. So I used, I always check the logs because I got so into this whole LIGO thing. I'm like um, a little LIGO groupie. So I would often check the logs and they will quote their detectability range in terms of the neutron star, neutron star collision. We'll say we can hear neutron stars currently to 50 megaparsecs, but they hadn't heard any or 70 megaparsecs. So a megaparsec is about 3 million light years. So that's pretty far out. But it turns out that the black holes seem to be ringing the instrument, not the neutron stars. And that's because we're not very good at predicting how big they are. We, you know, and, uh, and while the community was, I think, I always thought making silly assumptions about how big they are and being a little too uh, invested in those predictions, we've now realized that, wow, they're huge. And, and there's many, many of them out there. I guess the theorists that work on black holes probably have some work to do after this. Yeah, so people like <laughs> me um, have work to do just out of excitement, but I don't predict sizes of black holes. That comes more when people are working on stellar astrophysics. How big are stars, and when they collapse, how big is the core that's left over? Because they explode, and they shed a lot of material. And so those models, you know, they're hard, and they're very numerically based in lots of nuclear physics. And, you know, I never felt that confident even though the work is excellent because there's so so many unknowns. I, I want to follow the thread of unlikeliness because that seems to be a rhythm of this tale. Mm -hmm. Not only was the discovery unlikely, the instrument itself was unlikely. 
And the idea itself was almost as unlikely. I mean, mm -hmm. this idea originated in general relativity. Like Einstein's yeah. been talked about this a hundred years yeah, ago. Yeah, Einstein said as soon as he wrote down the general theory of relativity, the theory of curved space-time, he realized if objects moved, the curves in space-time must follow them around. But he struggled with this, He right? struggled with it because he didn't know would they carry energy. Would they be gravitational waves that transported energy that, could, that were real in that sense that could energetically affect a detector or take energy away from the black holes? So, for instance, in the discovery that was made, the black holes, when they collided, formed a black hole 60 times about the mass of the sun. It shed mass. The black hole is less than the sum of the masses of those that collided. And that energy was dumped into the gravitational waves. None of it came out as light. It was the most powerful event we've ever detected since the Big Bang. The power that came out in gravitational waves was more than all the power of all the stars shining in the observable universe. I can't handle that fact. I've heard that fact <laughs> when Discovery came out. And yeah. it it just points to the, uh, to the nature of what we're studying is so uh, non-human. It's so alien in such a way. Yeah. But our ability that we translated that into a sound yeah, and it is bizarre mm -hmm. because everything up until this point we've yeah. observed with light. Yes. And it is in the human auditory range. The, the instrument is sensitive, um, as Ray points out, to the frequency range of the piano. So if you were near the collision of the two black holes, even in vacuum, it's conceivable that the ringing of the shape of space-time would cause your eardrum to resonate just like air causes your eardrum to resonate, and you would technically hear it. That's so bizarre. It's nuts. You would also probably Yeah, there's die. all sorts of problems. <laughs> yeah. I mean, you shouldn't be that close to it. If you heard that, I would get away, you know? But um, the unlikeliness of, uh, of it is really, you're right, Einstein struggled because he started immediately, said the most important thing to turn to was gravitational waves. Immediately in 1915, he started working on it. And uh, he kept saying, they don't exist, they do exist, they don't exist. It went on for decades. He would, um, he would write a paper saying gravitational waves don't exist. It would get accepted for publication. And he would sneak in going to press a paper that said they did. <laughs> so this was still being debated when they were building LIGO, I mean, they didn't call it LIGO in the early days, but when they first started building these instruments, it was still under debate whether or not gravitational waves were real and whether or not black holes were real. So take us inside the conversations that Ray and Kip were having, Ray mm -hmm. Weiss and Kip Thorne, mm -hmm. were having that pushed this instrument along. Because if there's debate on whether it exists, I can't imagine there was a lot of mm -hmm. motivation from the community to build this. Oh, there was not motivation from the community at all. And in fact, it was very negative. Ray was working on small prototypes in a shabby little lab when he was a young professor at MIT. And, uh, and he was being told, look, you're not going to get tenure. This isn't important. It's never going to succeed in your lifetime. You got to work on something else. And he did. He, he worked on the microwave background and he had a very uh, successful career working on the light left over from the Big Bang. But in the meantime, he always had this other project going. It was his real, true love. And he would have to switch graduate students on and off of it so they could get degrees. And um, he couldn't get funding. And then one day he heard that one of his proposals, which had been rejected for funding, had kind of made its way around the circuit, that people in Europe had heard about it and people were starting to build little interferometers. And, um, and there were German groups who Ray raves about, say they were 
fantastic scientists and engineers, and they were really succeeding when he wasn't on his own idea. And he was, you know, he's a little jealous of that. And, uh, and that's just how science works. science works. You can't stop people, you know. And then he says the next big event was meeting Kip. So Kip is a famous physicist, but can you give us a little bit about Kip for our listeners that may not know? Sure. So by the time he was 30, Kip was a tenured professor at Caltech. He was uh, uh, famous for being both incredibly careful, but also very dreamy and very willing to speculate. And so he had one foot in just the reality of astrophysics and another in wormholes and time machines. And he was just just deeply admired and still is. I mean, Kip has um, sort of a special quality about him that people just love and admire him. And he's a kind and wonderful, generous person. He really is an extraordinary person. And he was thinking... Uh, you know, he describes walking, uh, I think it was on a visit to Cornell, thinking, what do I need to do? And this is amazing. He's already incredibly successful. And I think he's thinking, there's something bigger than me, bigger than my own achievements, bigger than my own accomplishments. He wanted Caltech to get into something big, something experimental. And he's not an experimentalist. So this was like a, uh, a sort of gift to his community. And he started to think about um, gravitational wave detection. And then he and, and Ray meet, and they stay up all night one night, drawing diagrams and talking about what the next big thing is, when Kip realizes, you know, I have to bring this to Caltech, and who should I get? Who should I get to come to Caltech? And that's when he brings in Ron Drever. So it's one thing for scientists to get excited about an idea, mm-hmm. especially when it's big science. Mm-hmm. It's another thing for somebody to pay for it. Yeah. <laughs> right. So... For a while, it wasn't such big science. They were doing things for $50,000. They were building prototypes. When they brought in Ron Drever, who's a Scottish physicist, he started working on a 40-meter prototype, which is pretty big, but not big enough. But they didn't know at the time what was big enough because they didn't know what the sources were. Meanwhile, Kip is pushing forward the scientific case. He's He's trying to get accurate predictions for what the sources are. And that becomes his very important role, is to try to understand the astrophysics. And uh, it ends up taking decades. And Ray begins to realize, this is by the 80s, so they've already put a lot, you know, Ray's already put in two decades. And although Ron has just joined Caltech, has also put in plenty of time in Scotland and elsewhere. And Ray realizes it's never going to succeed not at a meter and a half, not at 10 meters, not at 40 meters. It's got to be kilometers. And that would have been a good time to quit. (laughs) And instead, he says, this is bigger than me. It's bigger than Ray. It's bigger than Ron. We have to do this together. And they go to the NSF. Well, Ray does, really, and, uh, and begins to make the clearest scientific case and the clearest evaluation of the budget. It comes in in the $100 million range, and even that was too small by several. This is a big bet for the National Science Foundation. Yeah. And because that the amount of money that went into LIGO mm-hmm. more than, you know, certain departments of NSF in terms of their total budget. Yeah. So people are always careful to stress to me that this came from physics. However, it's often compared to the astronomy budget just because of the magnitude. The astronomy budget at the NSF was smaller than the money all that they were giving to LIGO. In other words, LIGO was going to get more money than all of astronomy combined. And needless to say, that caused 
uh, not so great reaction from the astrophysics community. They said, look, this isn't an observatory. It's hundreds of millions of dollars. An observatory observes something and it's not going to observe anything. It's more predictable in terms of its output. Right. And it's for three people. That's what they thought. It's an instrument for three people, and um, it's going to take money away from uh, you know graduate students and and more effective projects, and it's going to go into digging, you know, foundations for buildings. So there was a very negative reaction, and I don't think people realized that when they heard this announcement on February 11th, and there was this huge celebration in 2016 of this discovery of the century. I don't think people realized that even eight months earlier. Lots of people were throwing down bets against LIGO. Wow. Yeah. <laughs> it, I imagine you had to convince Congress as much because it's a huge expenditure. Yeah. So as the project grew and people, they finally had directors and they finally had a community of people working on it. They were uh, had spent two years, the director at the time, Robbie Vogt, two years lobbying Congress to actually get the money released for the project. And, and there were a lot of twists and turns there. Unbelievable yeah. that they actually, it seems almost as unlikely that they made the detection right after they turned it on as building it. Yeah, I mean, it was uh, slated to fail many times. And it, I always liken it to a kind of climbing Mount Everest story. I mean, not everyone made it to the summit. And um, and making it to the summit is, is no mean feat. It's it, it requires an incredibly arduous push. Now, the story got a lot, of, the discovery got a lot of coverage, mm -hmm. but can you contextualize this as a physicist, how big of a discovery this is? Well, I sometimes liken it to the first time Galileo pointed the telescope at the sky. Really? Well, we hope so. Our time will tell. But if you think about it, Galileo was just looking at Saturn and the moon and the sun, and that's because that's what we knew. He couldn't foresee quasars. Even galaxies weren't coming for a few hundred years before we, you know, understood uh, 300 years or something before we recognized our galaxies. So um, I think that this is not light, as you said, and it's a completely different way to observe the universe. So we're recording a kind of soundtrack to go alongside the silent movie of the universe. And who knows what else is out there? We start by telling Congress, <laughs> we're going to look for neutron stars, just like Galileo looked at Saturn, because we know they exist. It turns out we discovered black holes. Not that we didn't think black holes existed, but we have never observed two bare black holes. We've only ever uh, inferred black holes were out there by looking at the light of the debris around them. And this is a recording of a bare black hole with nothing around it. It's just the space-time coalescence. It's pure, literally there's nothing there. There's nothing in the black holes as far as we know. It's just empty space-time coalescing with empty space-time. So it's already a huge discovery on top of the detection. And what I think would really thrill a lot of us is if the universe is replete with unforeseen phenomenon that's dark. We know, for instance, that 95% of the universe is dark, does not interact with light, and that everything we see is, is less than 5% of what's in the cosmos. So uh, we're hoping for a whole new era. So where does the detector go from here? Are they going to monitor more black holes or just 
keep listening to whatever comes to them. Yeah, so they have to, that whole high frequency range, or they have to push it down to do better because there might be exploding stars, colliding neutron stars, spinning neutron stars, candidates that we we expect um, hidden there where it's still too noisy. So, so the machine's down right now to try to improve things. And it will go back up hopefully by the end of the summer. Um, and then who knows, it'll start to run like a regular observatory is what we hope. There'll be candidates all the time that are black hole collisions and neutron stars and things like that. And the real exciting day will be, fingers crossed, if there's a recording that we can't recognize. You know, that's, I think, what everyone secretly hopes for. You never want to say that when you're trying to get money. <laughs> you never want to say we're really hoping that we're going to discover something we've never thought of before because it might completely fail on that basis. So you always have to say, look, we know there's neutron stars out there. At the very least, white dwarves and neutron stars, we're going to get those kinds of things. Now, this was a billion-dollar project. Yeah, by the it, time it was done, integrated, it's a billion dollars. So is the discovery spurring more detectors like this around the world? Well, um, there is there are detectors that are being built around the world. There's uh, an underground detector, Kagra, in Japan that's underway. There's the hope for LIGO India, which is literally LIGO components being built in India. Um, there's a machine, Virgo, which has always been in the LIGO collaboration, uh, an Italian um, uh, component that it should be online soon because it's already fully developed fully built. Um, so the network of detectors around the Earth, what that will really do will be to help locate in the sky where this is coming from. Because just like sound, it's actually hard to locate where a sound is coming from. You know, if you're looking for your phone, you can spot it instantly if you can see it. But if all you can do is hear it, you're going to wander around aimlessly <laughs> trying to locate it. And it's kind of like that for LIGO with two ears, you know, the two instruments. It kind of vaguely says, ah, it's from over there. And um, they'd like to be able to say much more precisely, oh, it clearly came from that galaxy. In is this part everything going to be ground-based or is they going to... So space-based do- mission has been um, long term, long time under development. It's called LISA. And um, LISA, unfortunately, the U.S. pulled out of funding LISA. And so that was a big blow. There was a real um, effort to revive LISA as a purely European um, mission and hopefully the states will step back in and make that a reality. So Lisa is still under development. They've Pathfinder has already been launched, which means they've uh, they've launched something to look for the right orbit um, in which to put Lisa. And Lisa is still under design development. And if it gets enough funding, it will be pushed over the edge. And like LIGO, we're in the era where that may or may not ever happen. We may have a post Lisa era when we think, oh, that was touch and go. Lisa almost didn't succeed. Or it might be like the superconducting super collider where we say, you know, that's a shame that never happened. What do you think the legacy of Ray, Kip, and Ron is going to be? I mean, the discovery itself mm-hmm. is going to earn them accolades. Like, I imagine Nobel mm-hmm. Prize is, in, yeah, is I mean, coming. Yeah, I mean, everyone's w- wondering when when that would happen. Um, they've already won several prizes. Um, the Gruber Prize in Astronomy is a huge prize. They were awarded, and they were awarded a recent breakthrough um, prize. And that's, I think, going to... Uh, keep coming in. And they're so humble and sweet. I mean, they're, they're, they're quite confident people. I mean, they're not ridiculously humble. But um, recently, somebody was flattering Ray, one of his colleagues, Nergis, um, fr- a colleague from MIT was saying something wonderful about Ray, and he's covering his ears. I don't want to hear it. He's saying, oh, it just gets worse. <laughs> you know? He's very quick to say there were hundreds of people on this instrument. And Kip was very quick to say the same thing. Um, 
So, But the legacy of their commitment yeah. to this idea, do you think that's going to have long-ranging impacts, not only in physics, but in other realms of science as well? Yeah, I mean, I, that's why I wrote their stories, because I felt it has these universal themes of being committed to something when no one else is, when everyone else is telling you it's a bad idea, and curiosity impels you to keep going, and, and they just couldn't stop. And I think that's something that we all admire. And that is a kind of classic human story of drive and curiosity. I love that sentiment because it reinforces the idea that that science is still a human endeavor. And oh, yeah. even when we do the math, as it were, yeah, uh, it takes a little bit of chance sometimes to pull it all together. And well, it only works when a whole group of people come together. The lone scientist doesn't operate that way. Yeah, that's that's absolutely right. As a scientist, I have to believe in the objectivity of my work, that it doesn't matter if it's my calculation or somebody else's. And it doesn't matter if somebody does it or if I do it. And, um, and that's brutal, right? Because we are human beings and we are a little bit ego-driven. And yet, in reality... It was these guys. And in reality, it would not have been pulled off if it hadn't have been them, if they hadn't pushed it through. Thank you so much for sharing their story. Thank you. It's been a pleasure. Man, I could listen to her talk about this forever. She has such a great way of communicating her enthusiasm and why this is so exciting. And, you know, the, the whole discussion of the mirrors and everything that went into, you know, creating them and bringing them to where they needed to be. I mean, it's just kind of mind boggling. You know, I think this is a real personal tale for her, not because she's a black hole astrophysicist, but also because it involves Kip Thorne. And off mic, we were just uh, chatting back and forth. And she, she talked about meeting Kip at Caltech and how she was very early in her career. Kip basically identified her as as someone special uh, in her words and how much that meant to her and how much that meant to her career. You could feel that like kind of love and reverence that she has for all that she, Kip has done for physics. And in a way, this is the story of of one of his greatest accomplishments, if not his greatest accomplishment. And the fact that, you know, Ray Weiss and, and Ron Griever, also very respected uh, physicists were along for uh, part of this ride. It, it's exceptional. And it's such an unbelievable scientific discovery that laser moves like a quarter of the width of a proton. What? Yeah. How? That is so unbelievable. There's so many phrases uttered in this interview that I was like, I can't understand that like the the detection level and then the power emitted by those two black holes circling each other is more power than everything visible in the known universe what does that mean it's crazy unbelievable and putting all of that together and we hear an audible sound and we only heard the audible sound because people got tired and went home that night instead of staying on to to uh, do this. And that most of the scientific community was against this thing even being built. All of these things is just an incredible tale. Yeah, it's a it's one of the great stories of science, I have to say. And it's fun to have lived through it just recently. And, you know, it also kind of put put things into perspective for me. I liked how she, you know, sort of harkens back to the interview that we did with Sean Carroll, who, you know, as people might remember as a theoretical physicist. Um, and this kind of, you know, the difference in terms of what the theoretical physicists do compared with the experimental physicists. And, you know, she was just saying, like, 
and I thought it was really humble, but interesting too, that she was saying how, oh, you know, I think about these things and then they go actually and do it. And, uh, and, and yet oftentimes the ones who are doing it, you know, they're spending so much of their time that there's such big groups. They don't have the same kind of, I don't know, appreciation by the general public as a person who is the one who came up with the great theory, you know, to begin with. We should talk about the science just really briefly. I think what's really important here is that this is this instrument may open up whole new worlds in our ability to detect very distant, subtle phenomena. And the idea, I know it's it's sort of been mothballed, but the idea of the, a detector like this in the LISA experiment going into space and sort of even being more sensitive to universal phenomena, that's incredible. Uh, so yes, we observed two black holes colliding, but now we Probably are going to hear two neutron stars colliding and anything else that's colliding out there. Let's hear it. Like, I'm <laughs> really excited about the the science here and maybe even applications of a sensitive detector into other domains that we haven't even thought of. Yeah, maybe this will finally give us a slightly better understanding of what the hell these things are. <laughs> I think I might sound more excited than Jana was. I, I think I feel more excited than, than she might have been. But that's why she earned the title, according to Wired, of the chillest astrophysicist alive. <laughs> I like it. So that's it for another episode. I want to thank you for joining us for this installment of Inquiring Minds. I would also like to thank our supporters on our Patreon campaign, especially Herring Chang, Nick Cadillac, Sean Johnson, David Noel, John Kirk, and Jordan Miller. You can visit our website at inquiringshow.tumblr.com where we will post the audio file so you can listen to it again. And you can support us at patreon.com slash inquiringminds. You can also find us on Twitter at inquiringshow and Facebook. And you can send us comments, feedback, future guest ideas, any sounds that you have of neutrinos or black holes colliding, or anything else you'd like to inquiringminds at climatedesk.org. Inquiring Minds is produced by Adam Isaac, who would remind Indre that neutrinos don't collide, in cooperation with the Climate Desk. Our research assistant is Caitlin Smith. Our music is provided by award-winning producer Rianchian. You're right. I totally forgot. I actually sing a song about that. That's for another episode. Um, and we're your hosts. I'm Indre Visconti. You can find me on Twitter at Indre Vis. And I'm Kishore Hari at Science Quiche. See you next week. Across America, BP supports more than 275,000 jobs to keep energy flowing. Jobs like building grid-scale solar energy in Ohio and producing gas with fewer operational emissions in Texas. It's and, not or. See what doing both means for energy nationwide at bp.com slash investing in America. America.